This Pashmina podcast series has been made possible by the generosity of the Zeitelman Family Foundation, which is committed to the unity and continuity of the Jewish people through meaningful and relevant Jewish education and wisdom. Meet today's Wonder Woman. She's a trailblazer, a pioneer, an empowered Jewish woman, and she's making a difference for herself, her family, her community, and the world. Want to know how she does it? This is the Pashmina Podcast, and here is our host, Adrian Gold Davis. So I'm delighted to introduce everyone to Dr. Erica Brown, who is here with me today. Erica has just written another book called Esther, Power, Fate, and Fragility in Exile. Now, for full disclosure, I've met Erica on several occasions and once had the privilege of having her as a consultant to something that I was working on. And I remember feeling like, you know, that kind of egocentric annoyance that you have when somebody's going to tell you what to do in your area of expertise. And then I remember feeling afterwards so grateful that I was able to swallow back my ego long enough to get some of the very best advice I had ever received in my career. So for me, Erica Brown, you are just beyond. Thank you, Adrian. That's unnecessary, but thank you. No, it's not unnecessary (laughs) because I have to tell you, I'm a hard-headed girl. Um, And I was thrilled to get this book on Esther because Esther is my favorite, favorite Jewish heroine. So let's just start with the basics. What inspired you to write this book about Esther? Mm. Well, thank you for asking, and I I just want to thank you for having me. It's really a delight and an honor, and I've learned so much Torah from you, so it's really a pleasure to be able to share this conversation and and share this book, which is a labor of love. Uh, You know, they say that a book is like a child's, but actually it's not true because you're only pregnant for nine months. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, What inspired me to write this book uh, I could say it on on two different levels, but I'll go on a deeper level because I'm in conversation with you. Uh, when I was a doctoral student, my uh, my professor, uh, Professor Isidore Torsky of Blessed Memory, had recommended that I write my dissertation on a 16th century commentary on Esther. Uh, that preoccupied me for many, many, many years. Is it was studying this book? Uh, the book has a really interesting history that a lot of people don't realize who read it annually on the holiday of Purim, and that is that in the 16th century there were more commentaries written on the book of Esther than had been cumulatively in all the years leading up to Esther. Why do you suppose that is? So the the theory is that in the hundred years from the Uh, expulsion of Jews from Spain in 1492 and then from from Portugal in 1498, meaning that all the Jews of the Iberian Peninsula had left and they scattered, uh, whether it was in Italy or Salonika or or northern Africa. It was the first really large, unsettling diaspora shift. And this is the only biblical book. Esther's the only biblical book written in its entirety in the diaspora. Ah. 
as a way of navigating the relationship that you have with the king and the queen, right, with the authorities. And that was very devastating for Jews who always were loyal servants, who paid special taxes to the king for special protection. As we know, there were many important Jewish statesmen in the golden age of Spain, right. people who were physicians and poets and um, and stewards and courtiers. And all of a sudden, they have they're betrayed by this royal family, and so they've got to work out. Just as we, in the century after the Holocaust, and so much literature comes forth about the Holocaust, in not only in history but in fictional ways, as these are ways that we're trying to process a great tragedy. And the commentaries on Esther in the 16th century were largely the way that they processed tragedy. We didn't write uh-huh. history; we really wrote commentary. So you know, on the very first page. Esther, an overview. Uh, I read something here that that I wanted to ask you about. It's um, based on the notes of Aaron Kohler, and it says, Not a person alive remembered a time when the Persians were not in control. As the reality became less dramatic and more normal, the theological challenge it presented became more difficult. And and then it goes on to talk about what happens when being in exile is normalized. So in many ways, this is our story as North American Jews, isn't it? It's and in fact, some of the themes, theme of anti-Semitism, which I think growing up, I I as a child of the daughter of a Holocaust survivor with grandparents who are Holocaust survivors, and sometimes they talk about anti-Semitism and how people hate the Jews, and I thought we're in a different era. Well, of course, I wake up in my 50s and realize we're really not. Right. And so you've got the anti-Semitism theme. You've got um, the dual identity and figuring out dual identities, uh, You've, which, you know, when you have um, on the Democratic stage two Jews running for president yeah. right now, and then you say to yourself – you know, how comfortable do I feel with Jews in power? What is that? What kind of identity issues are at play? And then you have the Me Too movement. You've got here a woman who was forcibly taken from her family, along with virgins from the entire 127 provinces. Right. Uh, a lot of people don't realize is a you know because we tend to look at these books, especially Purim, where kids dress up and they go on sugar highs with all yeah, the candy. Yeah, it's a beauty pageant. Yeah, and it's and it's fun and. And then all of a sudden you say, no, no, no. the women who were taken and deflowered never went home. They never went home. And so this idea of mourning with these families who we don't know and because – because sex is aligned with power and when you don't have power, you become a sexual victim. So to have thousands of years ago a woman stand up to that and uh, win the contest and say, I'm more than a pretty face and in fact – I'm not here to save myself. I'm here to save others. So if you don't mind, I just want to uh, reference another the the uh, series of Ar- Arabian folktales, um, 1001 Nights, right. where you have a kind of similar thing. You have a king. This king is betrayed by his wife, and he decides that he's going to take a virgin a night and then execute her in the morning so she can't betray him. And yeah, and he, he actually, they, they run out of virgins in the kingdom because he's taken all of these young women. And uh, the woman who is left is the daughter of the vizier who gathers all of these women. And um, she accepts this role and she tells the king a story. And the story has such cliffhanging details that he postpones her execution for a thousand and one nights. So we're thinking about this story within the Persian context 
of abusing women, of exploiting them, and then having a figure like Esther who, not like Shehezarad who saves herself, right. but just says, kasher avadati avadati, if I die, I die, but I have to stand for something before that. And um, I, I think it's just remarkable because Esther is that nexus of two vulnerable populations. She's Jewish and she's a woman. Right. And yet she figures it out. So let's go to her her moment of clarity, her Esther moment, if you will. Um one of my favorite pieces of this book is, you know, what's said to her by Mordechai when he says, you know, it may be for this very reason that you were placed in the palace. And it sort of reminds all of us that there is no accident and you are exactly where you're supposed to be. How do you believe a woman can gather her courage and recognize when she's at a moment where she needs to activate her inner Esther? Yeah, I, I I mean I love that you said that because I I uh, I was signing a book for a friend and uh, who uh, a female who was deliberating on taking a stronger leadership position and I said you know when you lean into leadership I thought ah that's in the shadow of Esther you know mm-hmm. every one of us who makes that decision in some way relies on this antecedent this female heroine who understood that you need a platform and that once you have a platform, you have to decide how do you leverage this platform for good. And so we don't have – we don't all have a Mordechai, although I think mm-hmm. if women can find important mentors who can grow them, who can ask those questions uh, – and if they can't, then they hear their own inner voice of question. But in my own experience, Adrian, and I, I know you have so much experience with this yourself, so I'm interested in your view of this. You know, I I hear women and I hear myself, the inner voice that tells me to be quiet, you know, to be silent, to be smaller. Uh, it's the voice of insecurity. It's the voice of imposter syndrome. <laughs> and so – you know, sometimes we do need people outside of ourselves. And I will say this as a woman who takes mentoring younger women very seriously. Uh, you need to be, you know, you need to be the Mordechai to someone, to, to another Esther. It's, uh, it's on us to take out young women to coffee and say, you can do this. And I see leadership in you. And sometimes we're just so preoccupied with ourselves. We don't think what Mordechai was doing was really for the goodness of all. You know, you referenced also that that, that silence, and, and, and he says to her, if you stay silent at this time, we will be saved, but you and your family, your entire history will be wiped out. Essentially, what he's saying to her is, you can do what you want, but this is your moment. How do we know when we're facing a moment of that kind of import if we don't have a Mordechai behind us? Yeah, and it's a great question. First of all, I think he's a brilliant strategist. I'll and say. anyone who is thinking about being on a nominating committee, you know, you just got to open this book because he doesn't use only one strategy. He uh, he tells her, you know, your life is at stake also. So from that point of view, your life is at stake. He says, you and your ha- father's house will perish. Well, we know, we're told twice that Esther's an orphan. Right. So she doesn't have a father's house. But she has there, – there are two houses that she needs to think about. One is what if she's the end of the line and that's the the future of her family. But there's also the past. She's connected to King Saul right. who confronted his demon of leadership, which was getting rid of a, of a nemesis, of an arch enemy who would go on to persecute the Jews. And he didn't do it. He showed misplaced compassion. Now Esther is in kind of a repeat version of that story. And are you going to let your family name – die in this way? Or are you going to 
correct it. And I, I think a lot of us, because you, you were asking this question about how, how you know if it's your time, I think a lot of us feel that there are moments where we can be the corrective lens in our families or mm. in our workplaces. Is we, we, we come from something, maybe we're from homes where um, there was addiction or there was emotional abuse or there was silence. And we say, how, am, how do I want to be moving forward? How do I want to change the trajectory of my life, of my family? I just share a little little story with you, which um, which which moved me so. So my daughter wanted to speak at her college graduation. It was really important to her. She had she had a lot to say, and um, she went to the tryout, and she didn't get picked. Mm-hmm. And it was at graduation, and uh, I was texting her. She was in a large. We were in a large stadium. And the young woman who got up to speak was from, um, I believe that she was from the inner city of Baltimore. And she's the first person to go to college in her family, a young African-American woman who now had a job lined up. And they spotlighted her and they spotlighted her family. And I was texting my daughter and she said, you know, now I know why I'm not speaking. Because this is, and and both of us, she said, are you crying? I said, yeah, I'm crying. Are you crying? Yeah, I'm crying. And it, it was a moment of saying that there are people who have a sense, I have the power to change not only myself, but changing myself, I'm going to change my family. I could change my community. Maybe I could actually change the world in some way. And I, I think that there are moments where history is 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 putting... This question to us, which is, what are you here for? Well, you referenced the the Time's Up movement, the Me Too movement. What do you think the fallout ultimately will be? I mean, there has been success. We've heard some verdicts already, success on, on, on one hand. But one of the things that you write about in this book, and, and I'm going to paraphrase it because I can't remember where which tab it is, but you talked about there being this dichotomy between a Jew being in a position of power and that that being a wonderful thing and also a dangerous thing. Yeah. And the flip side of that as well. Yeah. The Can flip you speak side. to me a little bit about that? Yeah. And I, I look, you know, power, power corrupts and uh, power unchecked is dangerous and beauty and its connection to power is dangerous. So I think, you know, I, 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 I can't speak for all women. I can't, I, I, I'm not a sociologist in studying a movement. You know, it, it's been very deeply painful to me that some of the character, the cast of characters of everyday news have very obvious Jewish last names. Right. And I wonder to myself, if you're carrying that name, you're carrying it in some way on behalf of people that you may or may not relate to, but it's your name. And um, and so an Epstein and a Weinstein, that, that's really hard for us. And mm-hmm. I think that's the downside of peoplehood. You know, it, the upside of peoplehood is when you've got an Albert Einstein, you're like, hey, I'm related it's to so him. True. Right. Um, you know, I, 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 we always play the how many Jewish Nobel laureates are there, exactly. right? And, you know, you want the But there's a downside to that. And the mm-hmm. downside is when, uh, you know, your cousin over there um, has, uh, has, uh, has bamboozled people and embezzled people and abused or exploited. And, and we're related to that, too. And that's really what happens when you're a member of an extended family. And part of this is kind of taking some responsibility to say, what when I carry this name out in the universe, um, and what does it mean? We have this expression to be mikadesh shamayim, right? Mm-hmm. To kiddush Hashem, to uh, to make good in the world because 
the goodness in the world also reflects in the goodness of this of this beautiful family we're part of, and um, and I, I I actually feel that this is this is a real moment for women in society mm-hmm. um, to topple. All of us have had. All of us have been victims of comments, if not worse, sure. of uh, of people, uh, uh, you know, not thinking that it was ever going to bite them back. And all of a sudden, you're waking up to a new day where people are afraid. Now, I, I do want to say, and I, I actually been writing about this, all this news is also eviscerating for women of my generation. How so? Because you think to yourself, when you read these cases, why didn't you say something? Why didn't I say something? Why didn't we do something? Where was the voice? And I'm hoping that my daughters will look will look forward and say uh, that the women who came forward now, those were you know those were voices that represented the women who just didn't have the courage to speak. You know, it's hard. It's hard to have clarity and courage. It at becomes the same time. like retroactive. Yeah, it becomes retroactive. But I think when you see all this news, you don't realize. I, I, I'm only starting to acknowledge and name the fact is having a bad impact on me because I'm saying to myself, "Were we powerless for so long?" And then, and then saying, "Okay, just lean into the moment and say." Now, of course, there has to be justice. There are women who can make these calls in this call-out culture, in this unforgiving culture, and and due process of law is not been applied. Right. That's and, right. And so there's 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 that side too. But I do think I, I'm actually always astonished when I open up, you know, my right now my my Tanakh, my Hebrew Bible is is open to Esther, and I just see her big name in in bold, and think this was a woman at a time when it was yeah. un, uncalled for, un, unheard of, and so it's it's just it's just uh, makes me admire her more. Have you had yourself had an Esther moment? Um, I've had a lot of different, uh, well, I call them a destiny moments, but an Esther okay. moment is great. Um, I, I, not, I wouldn't call it necessarily the same kind of, you know, obviously not the same kind of leadership moment. Um, but I will say that when I was, when I was a child, I was, uh, it was young. I was in probably fourth grade. I was in a terrible Hebrew school, as so many of us have been. Jew jail, baby. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, I never heard that Jew jail. Yeah. Um, well, I actually was really good at reading the first paragraph of the prayer of the Shema, so I could do it in forty-five seconds flat. And I won a junior Jewish encyclopedia, and I learned from that that the purpose of praying is to say words that you don't understand really, really quickly. So <laughs> it was. It was a terrible experience for me, and yet a uh, a, a young uh, a, a young friend uh, in Hebrew school said, "Do you want to go to Shabbaton? Do you want to go to this?" Um, and I had no idea what a Shabbaton was. I didn't right. know what Shabbat was. Um, I had no idea what Jewish rituals really were outside of this very weird synagogue experience I was having. And so I, I believe that I went on my first Shabbaton. I think it was I was 11 years old. Um, and um, I was not a popular kid. Uh, and I was a nerdy kid who really liked books. I was not cool in my class. I got picked on quite a lot. Mm-hmm. And my parents had a very bad marriage, which resulted in divorce. Mm-hmm. And so I went on the Shabbaton and I saw, oh, my gosh, here are all these happy people mm-hmm. and they're singing songs and they're and they're they're really functioning in community. And I met all these wonderful families and and I made a decision at some point, probably around the time of my bat mitzvah, that I would start lighting candles. And that that translation from having an experience and being a passive observer to saying, I want to take on a small ritual myself. And now when I look at that, 
observance that turned into leaving my fancy prep school as a, as, as a junior and going to a Jewish school, spending two years in Israel learning, going to Yeshiva University and having a wonderful Jewish education there, going into teaching, watching my house become kosher, my brother and sister go to day school, my family move to Israel. You just say sometimes you have a decision that you make and it has a ripple effect on all of those decisions. And now I look at my wonderful, phenomenal family, um, mm. my four children, my two grandchildren being raised with really because of that candle, right? So, you know, you don't know where it starts. And more importantly, you don't know where it ends. Well, it's interesting, though, because you, in many ways, um, because you described the, the scenario in your household and, and your social life, what pulled you in was an anecdote to the to the loneliness and disenfranchisement yeah. of your life. Yeah, absolutely. So community became your pull. Yeah. Well, community also, um, you know, I'm, I'm more on the introverted scale. Um, that's how I can write books. Um, uh. <laughs> like I, I need people probably a little bit less than some other people do. But when you come out in the world and you, you need people – you need to feel that you have them. And, I, 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 you know, I, I think I do speak very openly about being bullied as a kid because I think it's a really painful experience that a lot of us don't revisit as adults. We want to prevent that from happening in our own children without necessarily stock taking of what it does to your own sense of self-confidence, your self-worth. And I think I saw in Judaism this real sense of people living in the divine shadow of treating each other as as a as as a creation of God, it was it was very different for me, and um, you know I think also being a child of uh, divorce was very destabilizing, and sure. you know trying to say there's got to be a different way to do this. I mean, you guys, uh, you know, momentum have you've created so many. I mean, incredible stories because you were able to provide people a way of looking at the world that they didn't have. And you were adults and we still didn't see a, a variation of the world that we, you know, there's, there's lots of ways that we can live, lots of decisions that we can make. For sure, for certain. There was a few other things in here that I just wanted to to mention um, and, and perhaps you can, you can um, comment on. Mordechai, perhaps aware of the cost of good looks challenged Esther to use her looks to achieve position, but then to ignore them in order to focus on the higher goal of good leadership. So it goes on. But I'd like you to comment on that, on the relationship between external physical beauty and leadership. Yeah, so it's, it, it's interesting. Um, there's a verse in Isaiah, in Yeshayahu, that says, you know, you it basically says you dress well, so lead. You know, And, you know, you see someone like, King Saul, who is who has uh, is tall and uh, and has good looks, although he doesn't have other criteria for leadership initially, and he hides from leadership. Uh, certainly, I would say the first story that illustrates this is probably the Joseph story. Um, you know, Joseph is uh, described as a as a man of beauty with the same with the same adjectives that. Uh, his mother Rachel is described in, which are the same adjectives that of beauty that are used to describe Esther, and so and the Joseph and Esther stories are deeply linked. Um, although we didn't raise it, there's uh, there are there's a genre of courtier literature: right? Joseph, Esther, Mordechai, uh, Daniel, and, and some people put Moses in that category of Jews who have a role, an important role 
in a foreign court. And um, you have to negotiate because on the one hand, you you're, you have to negotiate this balance between uh, looking and leading. So Joseph acquires a position in fair and 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 not out of, only out of competence in Potiphar's house, out of competence, but also his beauty becomes noticeable. Right, and then his beauty becomes dangerous because right. uh, this woman. Uh, if you haven't read the book, you saw the play. You know this woman, the wife of Potiphar, wants to seduce Joseph, and um, as he's running away from her, she grabs a piece of his coat, which becomes a false witness to him. So I think I think the message that I get from Esther is here's the here's one of the challenges of the diaspora, which is that looks are really important. Looks and sexual accessibility are really important. And yet you may have the looks, but you got to do more with them and you, you have to use them to get somewhere uh, if you need to. And then ignore them and do things that are more important. If you think about it, many Hollywood actresses get their starts as beautiful starlets and they get roles that play up their beauty. But their aspiration is to transform themselves into somebody hideous to look at and play some meaty role where they're a monster of some sort or another. And they generally get their Academy Awards for playing down the very thing that got them in the house in the first place. Oh, that's so interesting. I never thought about that. I'm thinking right now about Charlize Theron. Remember the actress who played Eileen, something, the female serial killer in a movie called Monster. And she transformed herself. I don't, I don't really herself. go, Adrian, beyond the 16th century or so. <laughs> really? Oh, my. No, I just, I, I, I mean, I try a little bit with popular culture, but I don't know enough about it. Okay, well, let me just say that there is a real um, yearning for, and, and also for famous people to attach themselves to something greater than fame, as mm. though they understand intuitively that fame is like looks. It's, you know, mm. it's so transient and it's like the ship's going down. So they try and attach themselves to something completely out of their league in order to, I mean, we look at that in politics as well. Mm. To have a separate celebrity endorsement is a huge thing. Yeah. Especially when these celebrities know absolutely nothing. Mm. Not all of them, perhaps, but but certainly a lot of them. So I guess I want to ask you, a lot is made of Esther's beauty. And, and you, you referenced earlier the fact that little kids like to dress up for Purim. And they, you know, and they, they perceived that this was some beauty pageant as opposed to some virgin kidnapped from her home and stuck in a harem where she yeah. was raped and left, right? right. So, and she's not going home, right? That's with each loss of of that woman's virginity is the loss of her ties to her family right. is the loss of her being a childbearing contributing member of of society i mean there's so much to grieve there there is but let's take this down to sort of the the nitty gritty of why or how we've sold this story to young girls as this that she's this i mean obviously she's a heroine but it's become about her beauty the perception that it was a beauty pageant as opposed to what it truly was why do you think we culturally latched on to Esther's beauty as opposed to the actual tragedy of her life yeah i i think um i think you know well i'll say it this way I've been very taken by a book by Anne Fadiman called Rereadings, and she uh, anthologizes writers who go back to a book they read as children and revisit it. Not their Uh own book, but they revisit it as adults and how they read it differently. And you'll see where this is going momentarily. So she reads a book by C.S. Lewis with her son, who's eight years old. She loved it as a kid. And then as an adult, she noticed 
this misogyny in this book, <laughs> this racism in this book. And she says something to her son. Did he notice these things? And the son says, Mom, can we just read the book? Right? <laughs> and um, and in a deeper story, there was the novelist Allegra Goodman who wrote in, in this anthology of rereadings that she read Pride and Prejudice as a girl and really loved it and read it multiple times. And as she aged, she was looking for something more sophisticated than stories about marriage. And, you know, she she describes stopping to read it as like breaking up. I think she read breaking up with your boyfriend, with your roommate's boyfriend sort of thing. And, 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 and it was enough. And then when she was 29 and um, she had just had a child and her mom died at 51 of cancer. Mm-hmm. And her mom loved the book Pride and Prejudice. So on a rainy day with her baby, she reads this book. And she observes that when she was when she was putting the book down, she was thinking, I need something that's more – there's more substance that's darker. But then when you really experience darkness – you kind of want something that's lighter. Oh, so true. Yeah. So I think when I'm looking at this, I think, and I think it's the problem, uh, uh, really a problem of adult education, that we read things as children, and they serve an important role as uh, when we read them as children. And some of the fairy tales, I, I did a course in fairy tales in college, mm-hmm. right? So all of a sudden, you're looking at a story in a totally different light, and you're seeing all that darkness. And then you say to yourself, I have to revisit these books. I have to revisit these stories. I mean, I have people – the story of Adam and Eve is an extremely complicated, deep and profound story about free will and disobedience. And I have adults – And forbidden fruit. And forbidden fruit. And I have adults who – like, oh, that's a ridiculous story. There's some dumb snake in it. I don't know what's going on. Some talking snake. It could never have happened. And it's almost as if you're – you know, you wouldn't do that with literature. You'd say, I actually humble myself before this text that has – I mean, the Bible has been probably the most influential text in the history of Western civilization. And it's the source of almost every metaphor in yeah. film and books and right. everything. And you say to yourself, maybe it's me. You know, maybe it's time. And it, it really – you know, rereading Esther as a reread other biblical books, it just I, – I, I kind of wish I could bring everyone along with me. And I, I think as a writer you try to do that is just say – Come back. Read it for the first time. Read it for the hundredth time. Every reading, you're bringing a new self to that reading. And um, and, and I, I brought an adult self to Esther, and, and I think a part of that was, was disheartening because you start to see the darkness. Mm-hmm. But then you also amplify the light because you realize just what a significant – leader Esther really was. And if you just saw her in the beauty pageant way, her heroinism is less too. Exactly. And I think in some ways, I wonder whether the emphasis on a woman's beauty, even, you know, the way it was sold to us as small children, is not a way of diminishing our power. Mm, No. It's maybe an entry point. Um, I think there's this, the self-consciousness around it, right? When you read this chapter two and these women are immersed in six months of oil and six months of myrrh, and I'm thinking, I just want a half a day at a spa. But, <laughs> but the other piece of that is saying it's almost inviting us, the excessiveness, because this book has been understood as a comedy and also a tragedy, right? The, the this like the excessiveness of a 187-day drinking party. I mean, we're meant to kind of laugh and stand outside and say, this is ridiculous. And then when you're standing outside your own society and saying, 
gosh, how much is the cosmetic industry making every year? Uh, why are we trying to make ourselves look like someone we aren't? Why do we care so much about what we look like? Why can't we get deeper than that? And so I, I, that's why I think that this, there's so many modern themes in the book. There so truly is. And in fact, the way that you covered it in your new book and, and, and a deeper adult understanding of, of the book of Esther, it could not be more timely on every possible level. So I would highly recommend reattacking that story and and any time through this book and just going back to the actual text itself. You know, there's one other thing that really moved me. I just want to read one of the quotes that you um, that you captured from Rabbi Soloveitchik. You said Judaism, or he said Judaism in contradistinction to mystical quietism, which recommends toleration of pain, wants man to cry out loud against any kind of pain, to react indignantly to all kinds of injustice or unfairness. For Judaism held that the individual who displays indifference to pain and suffering, who meekly reconciles himself to the ugly, disproportionate, and unjust in life, is not capable of appreciating it's beauty and it's goodness. Mm. Yeah, it's so a, he said it so beautifully. It's such a wonderful quote. And this, you know, this Esther was both inner strength, physical beauty. I guess this whole era that we're living in now, where time is up and where people are standing up, where women are finding their moment, despite the blowback that has come for so many of them. I feel like Esther is a very modern text. So if you had to speak to our listeners, what would you tell them is the most relevant piece of this book for today? Um, I guess it's, I mean, it's it's a great question and it's a hard question to answer. I think in some way we are part of society and because Jews have also always been culture, countercultural, we also have to stand outside of society and we have to critique it. And I think when you begin this biblical book in Ahasuerus' palace, drinking with his buddies, and it's a way of suggesting, because we have no other biblical book like this uh, that begins this way. We don't talk a lot about buildings in the Hebrew Bible. We don't have all these parties. And in the sense that you're walking, you're stepping into what the Jews of Shushan were stepping into, which is stepping into society where you're trying to gain acceptance and belonging. And then you say, wait a minute, what am I trying to belong to? Mm. What am I trying to belong to? And one of the things that was very striking to me, I just, and I, I, I want to, this is a kind of a sentiment that I think as we close the book, we always carry with us, um, not only after Purim into the year, but every week. You know, when we make Havdalah, the Jewish ritual we separate from Shabbat, we use a line from this book, the Jews enjoyed light and gladness, happiness and honor. And we carry a piece of Esther every week with us. And that is, how do you write the end of a story? Um, we don't have control over everything. 
we don't have and when you're not in a country where you're politi- you have political autonomy uh, you can be sometimes in very little control and feel like you're in very little control and i think for many of us in an election year uh, where there's a lot of antagonism and fighting and infighting and and it's very debilitating to walk you know, as a citizen and 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 be carrying all of this ugliness. And you say to yourself, what's the end goal here? I need to write, what is the chapter, the last chapter that I can write? And so I want to say that Esther didn't only have one destiny moment, Adrian, when she decided to listen to Mordechai and go into the king. She also had subsequent multiple decisions. And one of those decisions was naming Haman, right? Naming the trouble, right? Not only going to your rescuer, but actually naming in front of that person what's gone wrong. But then there's also the decision to celebrate. And I think it's really interesting. Mm. We make decisions whether or not we're going to celebrate. And I can say this. I work really hard. I'm not great at celebrating my accomplishments. I finished this and I realized, oh, my gosh, I I finished this project. And now I have a thousand emails. And now I have something else to do. (laughs) As opposed to Esther saying, you know, we're going to write this story down. And that's why the book is named after her. And she's the one who says, we need to write this down. And not only that, we need to celebrate. When people have happiness and joy, it's a gratitude moment. And if we let this slip away and we don't give food to the poor and take care of the vulnerable. Now, remember, Esther is deeply vulnerable and saying, as we come out of this, there's a commandment, a mitzvah, take care of the needy. So on Purim, when you're busy with all of your, you know, uh, pre-pa- you know, packaging all of your goods and saying, right, but maybe I don't need to spend so much on this. Maybe I don't need a, an amazingly themed, uh, <laughs> you know, gift. Maybe what I need to do is go to my shelter and make sure that I give a little extra there. So that that idea of baking into an event, the the pause to celebrate and the pause to acknowledge the vulnerable and do something about it because that's paying the goodness forward. Oh, that is just a perfect way to end. I want to thank you. I especially want to remember the celebration component because I think that if we don't celebrate our successes, our bravery, our courage, then we're less likely to step up again. What you've written here is just beautiful. I can't wait to begin it again and go through it. It's certainly going to be a fixture in my life, not just at Purim, but all year long as I try and have my own destiny moments. Thank you, Erica. Oh, thank you so much, Adrian. And I wish you this Purim and every day, light and gladness, happiness oh, and oh, honor. So may it be for us. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining the Pashmina Podcast. When women empower one another, we ignite a force that can change the world. Unlock your power today. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Momentum Podcasts on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast was sponsored by the Zeitelman Family Foundation. Spread the wisdom. Inspire Jewish individuals around the globe by supporting Momentum's podcasts. To sponsor, contact podcast at MomentumUnlimited.org. You're listening to a Momentum Podcast. For unlimited inspiration, wisdom, and empowerment, visit MomentumUnlimited.org.